Psalm 102, beginning in verse 18. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And of course, as we quickly review through here, just to bring our minds back up to this point, we learned that this psalm is written by a man that we really don't know his name if all we do is look at this psalm. We only know a description of him, and he is called the afflicted one. And this man was afflicted, was he not? He was in danger of death. He was in danger of his days being cut off. His body had responded to these afflictions with what we would call medical necessity. When you read in verse 5, him forgetting to eat his bread, the loudness of his groaning, his bones clinging to his flesh, and that he likened his life to an unclean animal, a pelican in the wilderness, or an owl in the waste places, or a lonely bird on a housetop. These are very descriptive, aren't they? And it's the result of what this man is experiencing. And this man we have come to find out by looking at the end of this psalm and looking at how it is quoted in our New Testament, we've learned that this man, the afflicted one, is none other than the incarnate Son of God. And that can be shocking if in your mind you just immediately look at Jesus and in your looking at Him you think correctly, fully God. But if you forget that He's fully man, then you can read something like this and actually be stunned that this is His response. Because I think most believers just kind of think in their mind, well, He was God in human flesh and He didn't really feel things like I feel and He really wasn't oppressed like I was. And yeah, He suffered on the cross, but surely it didn't hurt Him too bad, right? No, He felt every pain of it as a perfect human being would feel. And he felt what it was like to be a burnt offering. A life that is voluntarily consumed on the altar for God. And he comes down and says that all of these afflictions are because of his enemies But the fact of it was, is that Yahweh Himself, verse 10, because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are coming to a close. They're like a lengthened shadow, and I'm withering away like grass. And then He just kind of abruptly, at least if we're not careful in our reading, kind of an abrupt shift in verse 12 where 
He's no longer describing himself and his afflictions, but he lifts his eyes up to Yahweh, God the Father, and says, But you, O Lord, abide forever in your name to all generations, because you will arise and have compassion on Zion. It's time for you to be gracious to her. The mutually agreed moment has come. And we saw that at least at this point in the psalm, there has to be some type of connection between the afflictions of the incarnate Son, the Messiah, and God showing favor. That it was a mutually agreed time, and of course we know that time was at Calvary, where the apex of his afflictions and the apex of his sufferings and our iniquities being laid upon him, God did lay his indignation and his wrath on him, but it was not for his sins. It was for ours. And of course, on that cross, he did cry out, according to Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you cast me off? And of course, the Father, after pouring out His wrath on His Son for our sins, and it being finished, He cried, It is done. It is finished. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? To think at that sacrifice, totally consumed, with the fire of God's wrath for our sakes was done. And He, as the perfect man who had no sin, sin could not lay hold on Him. He voluntarily, His last act is being a living sacrifice. Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And He let His body die. And on that third day, death could not hold him because the power of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. There was no transgressions. Death had absolutely no power over him. And he rose from the grave. And folks, isn't it comforting that death will have no power over us? You know, if you're like me and you start thinking about all your sins... You think about all your past, there's still sins I can think that come up in my past that still trouble me and I just wish I could go back and correct it and there's no way that I can correct it. It's impossible. But to know that sin, as wicked as it is, has no power over my body coming out of the grave because of what He did. Because of what He did. And folks, if you're in Him... Death has no power over you either. Christ has the keys of death. And your body will come out of that grave. You can actually close your eyes on that death moment in great hope. And you could actually say, and it would not be incorrect to say, if you had the consciousness to do it, that right before that moment, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. That would be a wonderful testimony to Christ, wouldn't it, if you you and I were able to do that. 
Well, the Lord is eternal. <clears throat> and the result of this graciousness to Jerusalem will be verse 15, that the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Because in that act of favor, the Lord will be, has rebuilt Zion. He has appeared in His glory. And He has regarded the prayer of the destitute one, I take that to be Christ, and He has not despised the prayers of His servants either. Because of God's graciousness. Now folks, that brings us to verse 18. Well, we read another amazing statement in this psalm. That God inscripturated this. His very voice. He inscripturated this for a generation not that was existing, but a generation to come. This prayer of the afflicted one, this description of the afflicted one, this description of a future moment in which God is going to show His favor to Zion. All that we have gone over and sought to understand is all written down for a future God-created people. You see that in verse 18? This will be written for a generation to come that a people yet to be created, that's the generation to come, may do what? Praise. Praise the Lord. And folks, that phrase, praise the Lord, is the phrase hallelujah. Halal, Hebrew, means praise. Jah is for Jehovah. Hallelujah is praise the Lord. And folks, isn't it amazing that this has been written down for this future God-created people in order for them to praise the Lord? And that's exactly what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians. Three times in chapter 1, he says that God's eternal purpose, this mystery that was hidden but is now revealed, is for a people to the praise of the glory of His grace. Three times. Hallelujah. That's exactly what this is referring to. And folks, this has got to be a people that is created in the future. And what we're doing tonight is actually the fulfillment of that verse. Have you ever thought that we going through this psalm are actually fulfilling the voice of God written down thousands of years ago? How does that make you feel tonight? Makes me feel a little happy and joyful. Not just that God's Word is true, 
And not just that God has confirmed His Word and given us the understanding, but that I get to be a part of it. I'm a part of this. When you look here, a believing person looks at verse 18 and says, a generation to come of people yet to be created, and you could just do this. It's me! It's just me! And it's you who are in Christ Jesus. I love it when the Bible prophesies about me, don't you? Even our Lord in John 17 said that He's praying for those who will yet believe. That's me! Folks, we're in the Bible. Do you realize that? Not your name, like you personally, but in generic terms. You are the people that are yet to be created. Now how do I know, or what gives a hint, that it's just not talking about, okay, some people out there that you know are born... <clears throat> some random person out there. Because of this, look at verse 18, the word created. You see that word? Created? If you've had, I'm not trying to wow you with anything or to try to be overly technical, but this Hebrew word is the word bara. You say, okay, that's very helpful. What's unique about that term? It's only used of God's activity. What's unique about that term? In the beginning, God bara the heavens and the earth. Do you hear that? God's activity. And that Hebrew word signals to us since it is uniquely used of God's act of creation. It's not the word that's translated made. In Genesis 2 and verse 3, it says, On the seventh day that He rested from all that He created, bara, and made. There's a making that even human beings can do. A potter can take clay and he what? He makes something. But he doesn't create anything. It's not an original act of creation. He's taking existing materials and making something. God created it out of nothing. And folks, if a Hebrew person, an astute person, was being a careful reader, and he read that word bara, his mind would immediately go to Genesis chapter 1. And folks, that is a hint that this is pointing to a new act of creation that is similar to the original creation. And of course, we know from the reading in our New Testament that Jesus Christ is the new creation. And he is called the second Adam. Man was created, was he not? Male and female, he was created. And then in Genesis 2, it says how that came to pass. God breathed into him the breath of life. 
But Christ, the second Adam, is a life giver, not a life receiver. He's the second Adam. He is the new creation. And folks, those of us that are in Him, we also are partakers of that new creation. The Bible calls us a new creation, does it not? Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born from where? Above. This was to be written down for a generation, for a God-created people, so that when we read this, we will be vessels of hallelujah. Praise to the Lord. And folks, the ultimate accomplishment of this, it began at the cross. The ultimate accomplishment of this is going to be, look at verse 22, when the peoples are gathered together. What kind of peoples? The God-created peoples. And the kingdoms. And what are they going to do, verse 22? Serve the Lord. That's still yet to come, isn't it? Already been accomplished at Calvary, being effective in this life and in the generations to come so that these God-created people can actually read Psalm 102 and have that insight and be encouraged concerning our future. And folks, I do think it's interesting, we won't turn to it, but in Romans 9, Romans 10, and 1 Peter, he speaks of the Gentiles as a people who were not, but are now. We were not, right? We were not partakers. We were not Jews. But now, we are. People and tribes and tongues and nations all will come to serve Him for a hallelujah for what God has done through the afflicted one. That is a blessing. That is a gift. Now, what's going to happen between verses 18 and verse 22? We know about the appointed time. We know the end result is that the nations will fear the name of the Lord, that they will praise the Lord forever. In that appointed time, what did God do? Look at verses 19 through 21. For he, Yahweh, looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. And you just might want to put a little line as Hiel from praise in verse 21 all the way back up to verse 18. It's kind of bookends this little section. Folks, what did God do? Is this not love? 
God who is the Most High looked down. Do you see that? Look down. If you're the Most High, the only place you can look is where? Down. He looked down to observe the people of the earth. Verse 19. And what He did, He looked down for this purpose. Verse 20. To hear. And, verse 20, to set free. Everybody see that? God, the Most High God, the High and Holy One, looked down to observe the peoples of the earth, to hear and to set them free for a people who would make known the name of the Lord in this rebuilt Zion that it has now come time to do. Now folks, I'm going to ask you something. When you read verses 19 and 20, does anything come to your mind? There's something here if you're a careful reader, should come to your mind when you're reading this. Folks, verses 19 and 20 is exactly what God said in Exodus. that He looked down and heard the groanings of His people. Do you hear that? He looked down and heard the groanings of His people. And He sent a what? A deliverer. You can actually, if you want to make a reference there, this Exodus chapter 3, verses 7-9. through Folks, this is the benefit of reading large portions of Scripture. When God mentions something in the Bible, He expects us as His people to remember it. So that if you read phrases and names and places and ideas, you have something you have a brick that you've already built upon other bricks. God expects us that when we hear that He heard the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death, He meant for us to hear. I'm going to read it for you. Exodus 3, verse 7. Excuse me, Exodus 2, verse 23. Here's the days king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. God heard their groaning 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of them. Listen to what he tells Moses. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given ear to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down, did you hear that? I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. I have seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians have oppressed them. Did you hear that? Now you're in Psalm 102 and you hear, He looked down and He heard the groaning of the prisoner. And He came down to set them what? Free. That is to remind you of that first exodus because folks, what He is describing here is what Isaiah describes. Isaiah foretold that there was going to be another exodus. And that exodus was going to be so great that the first exodus would not be remembered anymore. But folks, this exodus in Psalm 102 is not the exodus from the physical bondage of Egypt. It is an exodus of a people who have been sentenced to death. A people who have been imprisoned under the death penalty. Look at what it says. To hear the groaning of who? Prisoner. Everybody see that? You're a prisoner because you're guilty. You've broken the law. You're in jail. You're awaiting the death penalty, right? You're awaiting your sentence. To hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to what? Death. These people are doomed to death. In fact, literally it says to set free the sons of death. And folks, you know this, do you not? All have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. It's death. God looked down to the people of the earth and what He heard was groaning. Folks, sometimes when you read the paper or you read the internet and the news, just just pull yourself back out of your initial response and look at all the groaning. They don't attribute it to their sin. But it is. God heard the groaning of the people who were enshackled and imprisoned because of their sin, they are awaiting the death penalty, and He has come, He heard, and He's coming, it's a time for favor, to set them free. Hallelujah. And who did that? Folks, we aren't set free from this physical world. 
We're not set free from the curse that's under the sun, so to speak. We're set free from the thing that really matters. Our sin. And that's what Christ came to do. And folks, is it not true, verse 21, that when a person has experienced the release of their imprisonment, they have had their sins forgiven. They have been set free. They have been given new life. They are now new creations. Do you know one thing that is unique for every person in whom that has occurred? Praise. (laughs) Praise. You are thankful to the One who has set you what? Set you free. And it's all right here. And it was written down for you. So what do you think about it being written that long ago? And you're in there. You see yourself in there? But folks, I want to conclude this way. Did you hear verse 20? What's the prisoner doing? He's groaning. Do you hear the afflicted one? Look at verse 5. Folks, what is the afflicted one doing? He's groaning. Folks, the afflicted one groaning is groaning because he fully identifies with our groaning. That's how close our identification is. The prisoners are groaning and the afflicted one is groaning. We're one. He didn't take on the nature of angels, but He took on the nature of Adam, of mankind. Why? He came to identify with them and to release them from their sin. And folks, for myself, that full identification with His people. Did He groan in our place? Did He suffer in our place? Was His life cut off in our place? Was He buried in our place? Was He raised from the dead in our place? Now hear me. Never to suffer the experience of death again. Now you just told me that all those five other things that I said, you're nodding your head. Yes, I identify. He identifies. I'm with that. All right. 
but you and I also, if we identify with all that, we also identify with His resurrection, and we also identify with the fact that we'll never experience death again. And Jesus Christ Himself said it to Martha, He that believeth in Me shall never die. Death doesn't have that grip over you. Death doesn't have that grip over your body. Your spirit and your soul will go to be with Him. Aren't you thankful for that? But death's not even getting your dusty old body. It's going to be raised from the grave gloriously. Sown in weakness, raised in power. You know what I say to that? Hallelujah! to the praise of the name of the Lord. Let's go to our Father in prayer.